Part Four, Chapter Four of Better Angel by Richard Meeker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Better Angel by Richard Meeker, Part Four, Chapter Four. At home in Barton, the summer days passed quietly, a little monotonously, as he had known they would, yet pleasantly too. Things were not much changed. His mother was older, and his father, he thought, much older. Their obvious delight in having him back, and their pride in his accomplishments, negative as they were, were at least partial payment for the things he missed. And the things he missed synthesized themselves into David. David's devotion, David's desirability, only seemed to make the gulf that yawned between him and his parents deeper and more difficult to bridge. It could never be bridged, he knew, and he wondered often if they felt as strongly as he. He thought not. It made no outward difference. He had always lived inside himself, hugging to himself with miserly ardor his most real treasures of mind and spirit. He found one day, in a trunk in the attic, a box of old photographs, among them a daguerreotype of his mother at seventeen. Here was a prim, sweet-faced girl in a costume stiffly quaint, gazing at him with barely familiar eyes from the darkened tin. A pleasant picture, but not his mother. She had been young. She had had young men who loved her. She had had a love affair with his father, and he had been its fruit. Yet all this seemed more remote and unreal than it might have seemed in a well-written novel. He recalled the day he had had the little rendezvous with Roy in the railway station at Grand Rapids, and, when he had come back distraught and frightened, his mother's confession to relieve him of his bewilderment, of the love that had been offered her before he existed. For the veriest moment, then, in his own chaos, the similar moment in his mother's life had pulsed with reality. She, the aging woman, with lined wrists, his mother, was, for a moment, the startled girl confronting something unforeseen and appalling. But the moment, with its exquisitely attuned sympathy, had passed, and she was only his mother, the aging woman with lined wrists, sitting in a world outside his own, trying to comfort him. The barrier, the barrier, it was what caused all the trouble. Ironical that a few years should erect so impregnable a wall. There was no way to penetrate it, no door, no crevice, no ladder over, no tunnel under, no path around, save only its dissolution by some miracle high and tender and brief as breath. And such a moment might come but once in their whole lives. There it was, three decades and a world. He knew he could never tell them, never hurt them, never even explain to them this wall that shut them apart. He must go on with the evasions, the hypocrisy, the compromises that he despised. And so, through the last slow weeks, his life seemed to him a thing divided. Here was the instinctive life, the life of eating and sleeping and breathing, the life of drives after supper, of an occasional picnic at the lake, of torrid nights in the small familiar room over the porch roof. It seemed now so much smaller and shabbier than he had remembered it and there was the nightly surprise of finding the heavy arms of the maple on the corner, whose leaves, as a boy, 
he could never have touched from his window, scraping the shingled roof and thrusting their darkness against the screen. To make more solid the curtain of wavering pale light the street lamp cast against his wall. And here, too, secret and apart, the imagined life, so vital and precious, with David its core and its will and its passion. He read, finding new delights in the sonnets of Shakespeare, in Shelley, in the patterned brilliance of Proust. And yet in all that flayed and slightly nauseous society, no figure he knew, comparable to David or himself or Derry, blundering through an unavoidable and uncharted fate. Somewhere, somewhere there must be an honest picture of it all, Plato and Michelangelo and Shakespeare, as well as the wry and sorry streets of Sodom. David's frequent letters, as the days went by, became increasingly tormenting. Looking only to the day of their reunion, they were so crowded with his yearning that it was hard to forget their tumbling phrases. And in all quiet moments, during the day, at night before sleep, David was with him, but teasingly out of reach. David's eyes, his voice, his body, in this posture or that, were with him, a profane and sacred pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night. Sometimes, his reticence breaking down before the vigor of his desire, he would send a poem, a fragment, a page of jottings, ecstatic or sad, but always pregnant with promise of future joy. Love tears my ribs apart, he wrote, and cracks my thighs. Love's irons are scorching out my too sharp eyes. Love gnaws a black jaguar at my red heart. Love snaps the pieces of my brain apart. Love is a dove. Love is a petal boy. Love is a rural song, a pale calm joy. All you who say so lie. Love is a beast, stretching his claws from west to bloody east. If you should hear him snarl and be afraid, hide like the mole, be circumspect and staid. He'll pass you by, and you will breathe as well, and you will have forgone the joys of hell. You will grow old respectably and shriven, but you will have forsworn the pangs of heaven. Such exhortations were not conducive to work, and yet a new incentive was given him before he had been long in Barton. He had left with Korloff the piano score of his Greenfield Mountain Suite, knowing that Korloff, in spite of his voluble derision of the modern, would send him a valuable criticism of it. Korolov's letter was better than he had hoped. Kirk could see the heavy old man writing the letter, and as he had so often seen him in his studio, laboriously, with frequent consultations to the dictionary, your suite, he wrote, is good. It is really American, indigenous, and yet sophisticated in treatment. Its cleverness is its worst fault, I feel. But it is a skillful piece of work, and you are a young man. He then advised Kurt to score the work for a small orchestra. It is ideal chamber music. I think its charm will be best expressed by simple orchestration. You can rely on your much-coveted modernity, on the line of composition itself, and its general confirmation. Score it this summer, and I shall let the Chamber Music Society of the Little Symphony have it this winter. The work, prodded on by this assurance of Korolov's, progressed slowly, and the summer passed. Often, after a letter from David, it gave him a singular satisfaction to walk alone at night, as he had done so often before. He trod the same dusty, straggling roads at the edge of town. Nothing here, either, seemed changed. 
elms, stars, the soft insect toccatas of the night. Yet, in his heart, what a change! And there was at least some periphery of peace around his chaos, a happiness which promised, it seemed to him, more and more certainty as the years went by. It had been tested. The few days with David were, perhaps, a hardly secure basis for such optimism, but in the seething ocean of his uncertainty, this love, so perfectly requited, he fastened upon avidly. When a lonely person grows older, because he is lonely, for whatever reason, there grows up in him, perhaps unconsciously, an ideal towards which he bends, an ideal of perfect self-reliance. Consequently, when his loneliness is broken in upon by love, if that love is not recognized by its object, and requited, his whole nature rebels at his captivity. If he is introspective, as he probably is, the struggle is all the fiercer. He hates himself, his groveling will, and he cannot completely understand. For love in him, in any one, has always in it an element that is beyond reason, and reason for the lonely man has become necessarily his arbiter. Why do I love you? Why do you love someone else? The eyes, the hair, the mind, the talents, the attitude, you say. But there is something beyond and behind, hidden and ineluctable. Others have finer eyes and hair and mind. Others are finer artists, and have more admirable philosophies. And yet we do not love them, you and I. It had been thus with Derry, and now, that flame dead for lack of fuel, this other, in every respect so fostered and fed, seemed a miracle no less. The basic problem, that which made any love of his, furtive and secret, was unchanged. But that, too, he found, one could gradually adapt oneself to, as small animals of the wilderness adapt themselves by wile and stealth and subterfuge to an encroaching humanity. It raised barriers, tangles of barriers, but if only some open plot remained, where two who have loved could be free and happy, that freedom and that happiness could, he felt, overreach all bounds and fill all the empty crannies of his life, and David's, to such fullness that the barriers would matter not at all. And so, through the slow, quiet summer, this duality of life went on, the life in Barton and the life that proceeded curious and aloof in his own mind with David, apart and yet more real, more constantly mixed in his thought and emotion than the familiar ways of home. To see David again, to be with David, became an obsession, by night, by day. Yet his eagerness to be off, for his mother's sake and his father's, he valiantly concealed. Kurt went east late in August, as a lover, to a fervidly anticipated rendezvous, feverishly eager. David, Grand Central, must not kiss, must not. The taxi, the words saying nothing, filling the silence only. The stairs, the key in the door while his heart seemed ready to choke him with its pounding. The dark and David. Oh, it was sweet, this, and certain. There was nothing to say, no need for words in this complete acceptance of each other, this fusion whose language was all endearments as old as love. 
the week between his arrival in New York and his departure for Brookway was David's. He was working afternoons in a drafting room. Kurt would meet him for dinner. From then until lunchtime, the next day, they were together. Derry's evenings were occupied, as they had been in the spring. Chloe he saw but once. The old question was on her lips, the old longing was in her eyes, and his new happiness with David only made her question and her longing the more poignant. Nothing to do now, did she sense it? He could not tell. Tony was playing in a summer stock company on Long Island and was not yet back in town. It was, both Kurt and David knew, a test, and at its conclusion they both knew that, unless the test had been too short, it was successful, for their parting was as difficult as their meeting had been eager. For the moment nothing could change. Kurt had hoped, and told David of his hope, that there would be some way in which they could be together, work for David in Hartford or New Haven, within driving distance of Brookway. But after much discussion, they gave up the idea as too uncertain for the present. Something's bound to happen, David, Kurt repeated again and again. I can see you weekends, often, and something's bound to happen. End of Part 4, Chapter 4